to Beers Business and Balls, presented by House Enterprise, brought to you by Manscaped. Head over to manscaped.com slash house and get 20% off and free shipping, or you can use the code house at checkout. This is episode 78, Jake Zimmer and Will Tondo. This has been a crazy few weeks. Uh, Talked to Terrence Oglesby last week. That was awesome. Great insight on the game. Um, You and I, to be quite frank, just had so much shit going on that you know, it's here's here's 40 uninterrupted miniature college college basketball last week. And uh, I mean, what a guy just to provide some commentary there. Good dude. Been around the world. Uh, knows the game of basketball real well. And that was a really cool conversation with T.O. Yeah, I just wish Providence won. Yeah, hell of a game to be at. I mean, uh, the videos of the dunk looked absolutely electric. Um, they were on the big stage. They couldn't close it out against Villanova. It was tooth and nail the entire time. But, I mean, it's not a blemish on Providence's season thus far. You know, they still have, you know, the high projections that they're at. They're in the top 16. You know, they're going to be one of the four seeds if everything still goes their way. Um, one of the top four seeds. It sucks, though. I mean, it sucks because it's like I think that was the most hyped of the most hyped game I've seen in Providence the past couple of years. I agree. And look at how packed that place was. They, I know they lost. And, but just it. like, not even like, not even like the packed, just like the national attention. Like they made Providence, Rhode Island, a destination that day. Standalone game. You know, they, you're talking about people going, the bars opened at nine. There are 4,000 kids that go to PC they sold 3000 student tickets. Yeah. That's nuts. They were there at 4:30 for the doors to open at 6:30. That was <laughs> huge. That was huge. And they lost. It's insane. And they lost. Say <laughs> lobby. I can't stand Villanova. Oh, Yukon big win over Villanova though. 71-69 is the final. Man. Uh all eyes on college basketball, though, now. The Super Bowl's done. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about college basketball after our interview. Good guest this week, too. Gary Goldberg, we talked to him a few weeks ago, uh, finally getting the chance to run this interview. I mean, really smart guy, Gary Goldberg, uh, CEO and founder of Squad Locker, Rhode Island's number one ranked startup, disrupting in athletic wear, merch, all that stuff. The official merch partner of House Enterprise. Very cool to hear his insights. Uh, raising a lot of money for sure. Awesome conversation. We talk some beer. We talk some food in Rhode Island, all that good stuff. Let's have some beer ourselves. Um, been having a lot of good beer recently. Rhode Island Brew Fest, I still, we are now two weeks in, have not updated my untapped. Uh, let's see if I can do it in less than a year and a half this time. Um, I think I can. I think I'm going to make some time this week, but we'll see. I think I'm just going to put the conspiracy theories to bed um, about if I'm going to let it go on any longer until the next brew fest, but still catching up, uh, still trying to process all of the good beer that we had. What's on tap for you this week? So I stopped at Treehouse and Sandwich this past weekend, Sandwich Mass, Cape Cod. Uh, very, would highly recommend very, very different vibe from the original Treehouse. 
Um, I haven't been to the Deerfield one. I haven't been to the other, you know, I think there's, is there one other location? Um, is it yeah, just a three? Sure. I thought there was four. There's one more somewhere. Uh, somewhere. Oh, Woodstock, Connecticut, right? Yes, yes. Um, very different location. It was kind of, it was in, it was right next, it was right on the water, beautiful spot. Very Cape Cod vibe. It's much smaller but they had a great variety of stuff. And it kind of just seems like an upscale boutique compared to Treehouse, but like the original location in Massachusetts, but still, I mean, the beer was phenomenal. I had three beers there, which was another thing too. You had to buy your tickets online, um, your beer, your beer port tickets. And it was either two or three is the option. And there was no limit on how many you can buy. Because usually when you go to Treehouse, you can only get your two poor tickets walking in. Yeah. You can get, I could have bought three. You could have bought three. Anybody could have bought three and they're not drinking or checking. So I thought that was odd. Um, but never a little odd. It's all brand for Treehouse. Yeah. I had three beers that I all gave 4.5s. Um, and because they, they really all deserved it. So I had Galactic Storm Peach, which was an Imperial double, uh, Very Hazy Mango, another Imperial double, and a Oreos and Miles to Go Before I Sleep, an Imperial Stout double, Imperial Milk Stout double, um, all 4.5s. I mean, the flavor profiles matched all of them exactly. Flavors of Oreo coconut, flavors of peach, flavors of mango. The IPAs were hazy and juicy. The stout was jet black, but tasted perfect. Um, four or five for me across the board. Great, great stuff. Treehouse, again, never misses. Never misses. They really don't. Um, and that's so interesting that it's like a boutique kind of place. I always wondered what it was like. And we've seen pictures. It's, I think, close to the beach, to my knowledge. Right on the water. Right, right on yeah. The water. Oh, you did just say right on the water. That's right. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really it interesting. Place it was interesting. Yeah, it's a weird place to put Treehouse, but it almost makes sense, right? You kind of have to brand it as something else, which it seems like they're doing. And again, it was packed in the winter on the Cape. So, you know, people still come to that destination. Obviously, it's closer for some people to go there than, um, uh, where is it in Massachusetts? It's not Cannon. It's um, um, Charlton. Charlton. Oh, yeah, I thought, oh, I thought you said Canton. Yeah, gotcha. Charlton, yes, Treehouse. Yeah, Trillium's in Canton. But no, I mean, I highly recommend it. I'm sure in the summer that place is jam-packed, jam-packed every day. I, I mean, we got there We got there right when it opened. You had to, like, book your spot. So, like, our session was 12 to 3. Um, and people were in the parking lot at 1130 ready to go. They had, right. like, five or six people just running cans. Yeah. Oh yeah, interesting stuff. Cool. I'm I'm sold. What's, I need to. I think we yeah. need to take a trip out there separately over the summer or something like that too. I'm I'm pretty pumped to see what they are coming up with lately though. Um, yeah, Treehouse it speaks for itself. I will also do a Massachusetts uh, beer. I went to I went to Notch in Salem. Finally, uh, I pass it almost every time I'm up there. We went kind of chilled out. I had some good beer. Let me say, I think the vibe at Notch in Salem, let me, let me just float this out there. Some of the best I've been to the last couple of years, kind of big place. They've got 
you know, a ski ball, first of all, a ski ball machine right up in front. That's vintage. Absolutely awesome. I haven't played ski ball in years. Um, very cool to see that right up in front. Very cool, uh, you know, kind of brick style environment. I almost got like a ski lodge kind of vibe from it. And that was very awesome. The room we were in was kind of in the back. I uh, had a fireplace on a TV, crackling, making all these sounds. Felt like I was, you know, having some beers in the ski lodge. It was nice. I will review Vol Project Dunkelweiss. It was a nice dunkel. Uh, I don't, we don't really talk about dunkels a lot on this show. Not really. Uh, there's not a lot of good dunkels, like in general, let alone near us, you know? Um, Dunkel's a hard beer to make. It's tough to nail flavor-wise. And I had one in a while, so I said, screw it. 5%. Um, I liked it. I think I gave this a 3.5 when I had it. We'll probably do it again. Clove and banana. Um, it, it's that's like a very... combo. Yeah, that's what Dunkel's tastes like, though. I mean, it's like it's clove and banana. That's like the two biggest things that that people taste when they drink Dunkel's. Yeah, so yeah. I, I liked it a I lot. Haven't had a, I haven't had a Dunkel in a minute. It's been, I mean, it's been a while. At least, at, least, at least a year or two. That's the thing. Everybody's so like on these IPAs and stuff, which I mean, that's how you make your money and that's how you make good beer for sure. But I mean, these are nice little lagers that you can kind of complement it with. So I, I liked it. It was a very traditional German style beer, 5%, nice fluffy head. Give me three, five notch, notch brewing company would go back. I would do it. They had, I also had a 3% lager there. Very good. 3% lager. Three per 2.9 to be exact. Almost like you're not drinking beer. That's yeah. What, what's the point of that? I know it, I was just so curious. I'm like, all right, this, this is either going to suck or it's going to be pretty good. I thought it was pretty good. Like it was, huh. you could just barely taste the alcohol. I mean, it tasted like a Stella. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I would go back to Notch. A um, lot of beer on tap there. They've got a bunch of IPAs too. There's Salem's a, a weird beer town. They've got East Regiment Brewing Company up there. They've got a few others up there. Um, yeah, was was pretty impressed with the beer scene up in Salem, Massachusetts. October town, but very good in the winter. Kind of like Newport. It's like you know you go in the summer, but there's shit to do, which is cool. Let's talk to Gary Goldberg. Um, Started off as a third generation textile manufacturer. He knew the ins and outs of textiles. And then all of a sudden walks into a store, realizes that sports industry stuck in the nineties is his quote. And that's when he knew something had to change. So squad locker enters the scene. And now it is one of the fastest growing apparel groups in the nation. So let's hear it from the founder and the CEO himself. Here's Gary Goldberg. All right, everybody, with us this week, we have the CEO and founder of Squad Locker, Gary Goldberg, joins the show. You probably have heard the name Squad Locker from us before. Not only did we have the Pastor Prime guys on the podcast a few months ago, but they are our provider for an incredible merchandise for the House Enterprise brand and all of its entities. Uh, Squad Locker is disrupting the, the hyper-local and intensively fragmented athletic apparel market. Uh, they provide innovative online tools, which makes it easier for coaches and league administrators to manage athletic apparel, apparel purchasing for items. Um, the Squad Locker team, it's a Rhode Island company. It's one we're happy to uh, be a part of, and uh, we're happy to have Gary Goldberg on the show. So 
Gary, welcome onto the podcast and uh, how's everything on your end? Thanks, uh, Will uh, and Jake. Good to be with you guys. And things are good. Things are uh, optimistic and up and to the right here at Squad Locker. So uh, we're enjoying the start of a new year. We wrapped up last year with significant growth again, even during the back half of what is now the uh, unending saga called COVID. Um, but things are good. And, and, and I'm grateful to be on your show. Thank you for having me. That's great. We're going to get into all the all the good things you guys are doing, but you know, let's, let's talk about Gary Goldberg to start, right? You know, third generation textile manufacturer, uh, grad of Brandeis. Um, so, who was Gary Goldberg, and what did Gary Goldberg want to be when he was a kid? That's uh, that's a great question. Who am I? Um, so. I typically don't talk about myself in the third person. Only Wade Boggs was good at that, and I'm no <laughs> Wade Boggs. <laughs> but uh, at heart, I'm a silly, silly person that loves to be creative. So as a kid, I was more of a Lego player and a model, uh, a model rocket builder and a remote control sailboat designer than I was a particularly good athlete. I was a really small kid. Um, Late bloomer, you know, I grew my freshman year in college. So, I mean, I think I hit puberty around 33. (laughs) And, uh, you know, sports was, it was complex for me because I was small, I was undersized, I was underskilled. So I was always dreaming and inventing and imagining, and that was really my playground. And uh, when I, what did I want to be when I grew up? I had no idea what I wanted to be. Um, and I didn't really understand the concept of career path, even in college or, or leaving college. I was fortunate that my dad had a big textile mill in Fall River, Massachusetts, where I was born and raised. <clears throat> and so three or four days after I graduated from Brandeis, I just went down to his mill and I said, all right, I'm, I guess I'm working now. And uh, spent the first year and a half to two years literally sitting in front of his desk, listening to him on the phone. That and learning how to run or learning more about running textile equipment. I had been in that factory ever since I was a little boy and had tried every job there was in the mill, whether it was working in the lab, testing things or working on the production floor, making things or working in the maintenance department, fixing things. It was one of the most complex, interesting, technologically advanced textile facilities globally. And if there was something related to textiles that was on the cutting edge, it was going through those buildings. So I was really fortunate. I didn't know it at the time. But I was experiencing firsthand um, one of the best textile education experiences probably possible on earth. And it was just luck of the draw. That was what I was born into. So I don't think I ever really wanted to know. I didn't know what I wanted to be. But I do tell people that I've never applied for a job. Um, And I've always just created my own jobs. And ever since, you know, the day I graduated college. So I've been very fortunate in that regard. And your resume takes you through, you know, you touched upon obviously those, um, excuse me, the days with your father, but of course, you know, you were the CEO of Case the Music. You then are now currently still the CEO of Clear Brands LLC. And then of course, the CEO and founder of Squad Locker. Um, That journey from Squad Locker starts, you know, around the 2015, uh, 2015 timeline. But what was that aha moment for you? that uh, triggered you to create this inception of Squad Locker. So before we get into Squad Locker, we should just talk a little bit about Case the Music. Yeah, of course. Nobody knows anything about it. You can Google clean brands. I really don't do much with that business anymore. The business runs itself. It's got a capable management team around it. I check in on it 
once every three months for like five minutes. Taste the Music was a really cool business. And one, you ever, guys, you're a little younger than me, but do you ever have a moment in your life where you regret not doing something in a different way? Sure. Of course. So I was playing in a band when I graduated college. I was really frustrating my dad because he wanted me full-time committed to what he thought was a career. I was a shitty musician in an average band in Boston, which was the best. There's nothing better than being a live performer in a town like Boston, particularly on a show like Beer, Business, and Balls. I used to play right near Fenway Park. Uh, All the colleges were there. Lots of beer, lots of fun. At the same time during the day, I was running a department in my dad's facility called the Heat Transfer Print Department, which was early into sublimation printing, which is the way most of our uniforms are made today. And... um, you know, I was I was playing around on that and playing in a band, and I went to go buy a guitar bag for a new guitar I got, and all they had at the stores was black. And every day I'm printing all these cool prints, like Harley Davidson prints and tie-dye prints and everything. So I took some fabric, brought it to a local sewing shop, and made guitar bags and patterns and prints. And took that from that concept to a full retail assortment across the entire United States in the course of about three and a half, four years. <clears throat> which eventually led me to a journey to go to Mexico where the NAFTA agreement had just been opened up to access lower cost labor to get my manufacturing costs lower. It was case the music in a world of, in a sea of black bags that I came out with multicolored vintage tweed, tie dye plaids for the grunge rock scene. We became the cool bag. And then I'd go to music festivals and I'd give them to artists because I was still in the music scene. So Bonnie Raitt had my bag. Um, Boss Gags had my bag. Bonnie Raitt um, had it. a bunch of other like great uh, Chuck Berry I gave one to. And yeah, I used to go to these festivals and give them to them. And then, you know, we became like the bag of choice. The reason I share that is because go to market, product design, disruption. It was the first time in my life where I took textiles and used my creative energy to create something new. And it really started to expose my brain in an early way to just because something isn't doesn't mean it can't be. And it probably isn't because you haven't gotten there yet. And in a lot of places in business, the world's waiting for you to arrive. It just doesn't know it. Or another way of saying that is the marketplace is waiting for you to arrive. It just doesn't know it. And so I think as an entrepreneur, you can get really caught up in fine-tuning something that is already in existence, but it's really kind of creating new things. Guitar bags, and our bags had a bunch of really cool features, and when we went to a trade show, um, you know, we were the booth to be seen and the booth to be hung out at, all because of the culture of the business, which was extremely disruptive, and we didn't really care about the establishment. Now, fast forward to uh, before 2015, we recapitalized the business in 2015. That's when I turned it into a subchapter S. We um, got, you know, real venture funding and kind of reestablished the business. But before that, I was tinkering with it. And, um, you know, my wife and I, we live in Rhode Island. We've raised three kids in Rhode Island. Uh, We've got a 23-year-old boy, a 21-year-old boy, and a 20-year-old daughter. And all three of those kids went through some sort of a youth sports experience. Some of them are more intense than others. They're all three very different athletes, very different players. They play different roles on teams. Um, But the fundamental thing that I saw early on was 
I went to a store in Warren, Rhode Island called the Gob Shop. And when I entered the Gob Shop, when my kids were young, talk about 2005 to 2008, maybe, it was like I was going to the same team dealer in Fall River, Massachusetts in 1978. There's fundamentally no difference. Wooden floor, glass counter. Um, you know, there was very little technology, if anything. I filled out a three-part form. I put my kid's name on it. I paid the guy 30 or 40 bucks, and he said, come back in four to six weeks and pick up your uniform. Then I went home, and my wife has, as I describe, a pie plate on our kitchen counter, and on that pie plate was a Bluetooth keyboard and an iPad connected to it. And she was managing the house through that iPad. She was buying back-to-school clothes, books, supplies for the home, groceries on what was Peapod at the time. It was before uh, Amazon Prime started delivering groceries. And I would argue that 80, 60 to 80 to percent of the household income of spend was going through that iPad. And I saw how many kids were in the Barrington Youth Soccer League, Little League, Barrington Youth Lacrosse. And I was like, why is that thing up the street caught in 1977? Why has this not progressed? And so that was the original aha moment. From there, there was a lot of things to figure out about why it was caught in that space. Luckily, most of it was textile technology-based problems. So going back to my experience about being in the world of textiles, I was fortunate in the fact that I understood anything and everything that has to do with a textile-related item. So, Will, if I could look at that uh, Vineyard Vines top that you have on, and I can look at, you know, the polo shirt that Jake has on, and I could tell you with great certainty what fiber types are in those fabrics, what the weights of those fabrics are. I could tell you what sewing equipment was used to make them. I could even argue a good pretty rational explanation on what part of the world those are made in. And so knowing all that, it's just like, I don't know, it's just what I know. Every time I look at a piece of fabric or a finished textile item, I kind of can tell its story. And so then I looked at the supply chain around the gob shop in Warren and other places like that. There's about 12 or 13,000 of them across America. And they're all designed on what's called batch processing. So waiting for a lot of things to aggregate into one order to run them at once. And that lowers the cost, but it has a setup. Multi-head screen printing machine, multi-head embroidery machine, 12, 24, 36, 48 minimum orders. Well, that doesn't really align with the way that maybe I wanted to get my uniform purchased that day. I wanted to go into that store and I was like, hey, here's my money. And can I have it today? Well, if I can't have it today, can I have it in two or three days? By the way, I'm not coming back here because I have nothing to come back here for. We got our cleats. We got our mouth guard. Bring it to my house. In fact, why do I need to come here at all? And so I started examining the need for technology to drive single unit manufacturing costs as close as possible to batch processing costs with zero setup, literally moving all that setup into the digital sphere, the digital ecosystem. So that effectively I could create almost like a soft serve ice cream machine in our factory. Hey, I want Will's shirt. Pull the lever down. Will, number 13. Hey, I want Jake's hat and short. Pull the lever down. Boom, Jake's, Max's, Gary's, whoever's on the team. I wanted them to be made individually and directly for that one consumer each and individual time. And that is super complicated. One, you've got to create an ecosystem on the front end to capture all that customer data and to make the customer sticky and inviting and fun to shop in digitally. 
But the other thing is then I got to connect it to a shop floor that actually brings those products to life in a very, very short time frame. And so that's kind of a very high level of the squad locker journey. It's problem, which is long lead times, awkward customer purchasing experience, open and close windows, times you can buy, times you can't buy, unlike any other consumption pattern in the United States. If you want a car or you want to buy a book or you want to buy a TV, you don't wait for the ordering window to open. You go get it, right? And, you know, the United States up until the last 18 months has been a really robust supply system where you could effectively get anything at any hour of the day. And so I wanted that experience for youth sports. I wanted that experience for schools. And now we're looking at that experience for corporations as well. That's kind of a long-winded uh, explanation of what we do and how I got here. Yeah, the, the bottom line is that people are bought in here, Gary, because you, you guys have now raised by our count over 40 million bucks. Uh, you just did a $20 million Series C round uh, last year, which, by the way, it looked like it, I think that's the largest in Rhode Island um, out of any startup. Uh, ABS Capital Partners and Causeway Media Partners. Um, walk us through, you know, getting the word out there, right? You have this idea, you have this concept that works, you've identified, you've had a laser focus on what that problem looks like. And now you have to go convince other people to basically back you guys up with money. You know, what, what did you learn about Squad Locker and how did that evolve through that journey as well? Well, that is the, uh, one of the most complex things about, you know, running a fast growth uh, technology-backed business, uh, we burned cash. So we had not been profitable. We're approaching profitability now. So we needed fuel for the jet engine and or the rocket engine, and that fuel is cash. Um, and so just because I like the business doesn't mean it's a good business to invest in. And just because I'm a good guy doesn't mean it's investable. Those are important components because I would argue that most of the people that have invested in our business invest in the people as well as the idea. And so if you don't have both simultaneously, if you can't articulate your vision, if you don't appear trustworthy, right? If you burn people in your past, people find out about that stuff. So, you know, one of the things I always tell my children is the world is run by people and your reputation is the one thing that you have for you and you have to preserve it no matter what. Operate with great integrity. In fact, in our leadership circle here at Squad Larker, that's one of the quadrants is integrity, like doing the right thing when no one's looking. Um, but raising money is, is hard, and it's a tireless, exhausting process. You, um, If you think it's going to take three months, it's going to take a year. If you think it's going to take a year, it's going to take two and a half years. Um, and you have to be prepared to be said no to as often as you can imagine. So um, I probably in the Series C raise had a hundred solid no's. That is effectively getting up to go ask somebody to dance in a nice place where everybody's enjoying themselves and somebody looking you right in the face and say, I'm not dancing with you. After a while, you can worry, you know, is there a ward on my nose that I don't know about? How bad's my breath, right? I mean... It is not a fun process, but I'll tell you what, if you're good and you're clever and you're determined because I think entrepreneurialism is all about endurance, in most cases it's like, can you last? Can you last, right? And so in the, in the race of endurance, when it comes to raising money, you 
when you're told no, you have to ask why. I don't understand this. You didn't explain this right. I'm doubtful about that. Boy, the next one, you better make damn well sure that you've got all those answers figured out and clarified for your next pitch. So, you know, it, it takes a long time. The company's far more investable now than it's ever been. I would argue that the opposite is true now where we have people coming to us and asking, are you interested in more investments? Are you interested in other things? But the world changed because we, you know, we kind of got across a, a difficult chasm. And, you know, after those hundred no's and you finally got that yes, what was that flip of the switch moment for you where did something in your approach change? Did you yep. stay in the path? What, what was it that changed for you that finally turned those no's to yeses? It's a great personal story. It's a Rhode Island story, which is even more interesting. So Rhode Islanders, listen to this. So my son and I, my son was uh, playing a winter sport called squash. And I used it as a way to get a workout with him, indoor racket sport. We joined the Brown University courts over there, <clears throat> which is near where we live in College Hill. And I went over there one day to, you know, whack a ball around. In comes this guy with like a knee brace and like looks like he couldn't even like get up the stairs. And he goes, you guys mind if we play in a little? And so we went like a little round robin thing. And I thought to my, my son was the captain of the squash team at the time. I was like, man, he's going to lick this guy up. Like he's going to crush him. Well, like two minutes into it and we were both out of breath. And this guy with the knee brace and the, you know, the belly and the gray beard like was phenomenal. He could just get to the center of the court and put the ball in any corner and just kill us. So afterwards, it's like, what do you do? So I'm like, ah, oh, I got this startup thing. He goes, let me come by and see it. I, I invest in businesses. His name's Steve Schweik. He works at a, a investment bank now called Stiefel. Um, but he had his own practice before that was called Moreland Capital. He came by, this is early, before the Series C. And uh, he looked at my operation, he goes, this is the most cockamamie thing I've ever seen. This is never going to work. <laughs> so I was like, all right, Steve. But he goes, hey, I'm all, I'm, all, I'm around town all the time. I love to grab beers. Call me for a beer. I'm like, okay. Well, I bump into him two and a half, three years later. And now I'm in, the, I'm in no 98. And I'm like, he's like, how's it going? I was like, actually, my revenue's up and to the right. I've grown 70% a year, year over year. All these, he's like, what are you talking about? I thought, never thought you'd get it off of first base. I'm like, no, look, it's a real thing now. I said, but I'm in the middle of Series C and I can't get arrested. He goes, tell me who you're pitching. And I told him the class of investors I was pitching. He goes, dude, you're in the wrong pond. You're in the wrong lake. You want to go pitch tech-enabled service providers who invest in tech-enabled services, not software as a service. You're in the wrong like sector. I'm like, oh. Went home that night, Googled tech-enabled service investment firms, created a list in Excel, emailed 10 of them, got three responses back, got on the phone with Mike Avon from ABS Capital, and he goes, yeah, it's not for me. I don't really like it. I was like, well, look, I appreciate that, but you don't really understand it. So if you're ever around, come by and take a look, kick the tires. And to his credit, he did. And so for entrepreneurs out there, you know, first impressions are one thing, get to know things like, and do your work, right? Don't be a lazy person. Don't say, I don't like it or it won't work. Like lean in, lose your biases. So to Mike Avon's credit, he's like, Hey, I'm going to be in Boston. Like whatever. It's not a long ride. I'll drive down, check it out. He came and he saw our facility, which is all driven around single unit production and computer integrated manufacturing connected to the front end experience, which drives all the demand. He goes, this is completely different than what I suspected it would be. This is very, very interesting to me. 
I think you're really on to something here. And then we formed a friendship, which led to an investment, which closed the round. Now, it's a Rhode Island story because, one, I met some guy playing a game that I wasn't good at. I mean, a little back to sports. Two, happened around Brown University. Three, the guy said no to me, you know, three years earlier. I mean, get used to no's, right? And, and the opposite of love isn't hate. It's apathy. It's indifference, right? No is just another form of I don't understand. It doesn't mean no, I'm not interested. It's like, no. Oh, that's a reaction. Mm-hmm. It's when someone doesn't answer and just turns away, that breaks your heart. So uh, so that's that's my Series C story. Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. A um, lot of no's involved, but that's, that's how you get to the yes eventually, right? So the growth continues at that point, right? You raise some money, you get some cash in the door. Um, now you've got a 50,000 square foot space, uh, you know, state-of-the-art manufacturing facility, distribution rights in some of the world's most sought after apparel brands too. Um, a lot of partnerships, you know, Sports Engine comes to mind, a division of NBC Sports, of course. And, you know, most importantly, you know, you guys get named, or arguably most importantly, the number one best startup in Rhode Island. Um, revenue potential, your team, your brand and traction and just fitting well in the landscape. So in, let's get real here. In your wildest dreams, did you ever envision, you know, kind of being the startup that everybody else looks to in this state? I appreciate that. We don't think of it that way. Um, and I'm not trying to be humble. It's just it's just not part of my psyche. Um, we're The work we do is very gratifying. The team that we built here is deeply connected and personally interdependent. Um, and there's just a tremendous amount of trust. And so it's very heartwarming to see people leaning in and doing the work and trying to make it easy for mentors to buy decorated apparel so that they can invest more time with their kids. So really that's what we get up and do every day. And we do it in a way that is, as you guys have used the word disruptive and gives them a lot more time and ease and convenience. So did, you know, I just knew early on Jake and Will that this was an area that was ripe for disruption. And I knew that if I had enough endurance, I could find a way forward to invent something that was really spectacular. And I think I had a hunch, had a lot of good breaks and a lot of good people helped me along the way. This is 2% me, 98% the people that I surrounded myself with. Um, But to answer your question, I kind of always knew that we were into something special and I don't know where it ends. You know, we're, we're growing again, grown through COVID. It's exciting. It is definitely exciting. And let's touch upon, you know, that quote you just said, it's 2%, 98% about the people you surround yourself with. Um, you built yourself a powerful team, uh, a very reputable team as well. Jim Day, VP of Global Supply Chain from the 47 brand. Jim Malika, SVP of Digital Marketing and Consumer Engagement for Under Armour. And of course, the two gentlemen that are right behind you and uh, Tip Fairchild and Dan Copen. Um, this team that you've built, obviously it's through different connections and, you know, you, you built what you needed and you found the people that filled something that you might have not had yourself. Um, but how would you say is the best way to describe how you built this team? You know, how did you find these people? How did you, you know, notice that you might've been lacking in something or squad lock or needed something and you reached out to the right people? So, um, the people are everything. 
There are a lot of people on LinkedIn that work at Squad Locker. The first and most important people to recognize are the people that aren't on LinkedIn, that go every day to our factory and make the products that go to the kids and parents across the United States. They're the front line. They're the foot soldiers of the battle that Squad Locker's uh, entrenched in. And they get very little notoriety online. In fact, anywhere. And so without them, we have nothing. And those, these are the men and women that also during COVID came into our facility and went to work every day when other people could enjoy being remote workers. So the front line of our facility is awesome. They're great people. They have a huge heart. They work hard. And for the most part, you know, it's, it's just a wonderful experience to have them. There are other people too. Um, as the company's grown, the needs of its talent pool has expanded into areas where I was a kindergartner, sales and marketing, professional sales and marketing. I can sell by myself, but I can't build a sales and marketing organization. We recently hired a guy by the name of Scott Brazino, who's president of the organization, um, who has a 20-something year career of building, you know, significant revenue streams in the hundreds of millions to one of them, which was a billion dollars. Um, you know, we've got Stephanie Mirando, who's running our marketing department, Deb Dickey and customer service, just to name a few. And Hillary Hanners now, who's our HR director. I mean, and again, just to name a few, I'm not purposely limiting uh, names or people, but you're right. I did make it a point to surround myself with people that are more capable and better skilled at the jobs that I'm hiring for than I am myself. Surround yourself with giants, stand on their shoulders, right? That's the methodology. And George Overholtz, our chairman, early on in the organization when we had maybe, I don't know, 10 people, 10 employees, he said, your number one job will become the chief recruiter for the company. You're going to be responsible for acquiring as much talent as you can and letting go for as many responsibilities as you're capable of letting go from. And he said, quite frankly, what you should really be good at if you do that well is golf. <laughs> because effectively, you want to get yourself out of a job. And that was his advice to me. And I didn't get it at first. I was like, what's he talking about? You know, I got to go show these people that. I got to go teach people how to do this. I got to go do that because nobody knows. Nobody knows. And then after a while, I was like, wait a minute. Maybe I don't know. Like, and by the way, it's exhausting. I can't do 20 jobs. I can't do 30 jobs. I can't do 60 jobs. I better do what George said. I better get a bunch of really good people around me and get ready to let them set their goals with them be really clear and transparent about what success looks like for them, incentivize their pay and equity structure so that when they reach their goal, they get a prize and treat them like teammates, like family. So that is uh, a lot of what I do. I spend a lot of time meeting people and meeting people isn't just interviewing them on Zoom. It's inviting them to have lunch. It's learning about what their family's like. What do they like to do in their personal time? I know more about my employees' personal lives than one would necessarily think. I know which people have children with disabilities. I know which people have children that are um, educationally focused, sports focused. I know um, one family that likes to garden. I know as many things as I can because I understand that these people are an important part of my success and the company's success. And I want to be deeply invested in their happiness. 
And the happier these people are when they come to work and the more satisfied they feel about the place they work, the likelihood increases that this is successful. Um, and so that's my job. Of course. And I do want to say <clears throat> with the team you've built and what you've created with Squad Locker, um, this isn't just a shameless plug for you guys. And because, you know, we work for you as well, but your customer success team and your design team, I would say, is top of the line, cream of the crop, A plus all around. Anytime we put up a design up, your design team emails us immediately. This is great. Oh, can we tweak this? Can we change this color? Incredible. But the customer success team, I really do want to point out from obviously, you know, we're going to touch upon COVID and all of the shipping stuff. Anytime someone purchases our an item from our store, uh, they're always emailing with updates. They're always, you know, super communicative. So I just want to, you know, point that out to you that those people on those teams are doing an amazing job and uh, we appreciate it. And so the, so do the supporters of the podcast and the brand as well. Yeah. So customer satisfaction is the key driver of my personality. It's a culture that we've invested in here at Squad Locker. One, because our single unit fulfillment allows us to make things right instantaneously if something is wrong. And so in the world of custom apparel, it's very unusual to be able to return something that's been customized. Well, we actually don't tell you to return it. We just say to you, well, if it didn't fit and you don't like it, we'll just make you another one for free. Why? Because we want you to be happy so you spread goodwill about the company. But two, the team or the school or the corporation that you were poured into wants to know that their constituents are being handled with care. Now, there's nothing more rewarding for an employee who's empowered to make people happy. And so not only is it good for our customers, but it's good for the people who work here because someone on the front line has the authority to make somebody smile and is in fact told, I don't care what it takes, you make sure those people smile. So that's just a cultural perspective that we have here. We know that investing in that free garment or that replacement garment will pay dividends down the road. We appreciate your comments on uh, the customer service team. And again, Deb Dickey leads that. She's got an awesome team underneath her. She is a superstar. Yeah, that's it's so awesome to hear the, you know, the people really are the backbone and it, it shows. Um, it shows in the experience we've had our and our, <clears throat> excuse me, our customers have too. Will alluded to this. Let's talk about COVID. Let's talk about supply chain and, and all these things. Not fun. Nobody's immune to it. Um, with sports being canceled right at the beginning, you know, masks became the new, all right, you know, let's custom opportunity, right? We can get these out to people. It's, it's doable. They need it. Great. Um, you guys ended up selling over 150,000 masks, uh, from the inception that, you know, you guys started to turn that on. How quick was that, you know, uh, manner that you guys adapted, um, you know, we, we spoke with a lot of brewers that pivoted to hand sanitizer, for example, right? And it was within a matter of, all right, these are the resources I have. I'm making vodka and said, let me make hand sanitizer, right? Yeah. What was that switch with you guys for masks? So when the world turned to masks, we turned to our suppliers and said, do you have blank masks? And then three days later, we were printing them. I mean, uh, it kind of happened on its own. It represented 10% of our revenue in the year uh, 2021. No, 2020 was 10% of our revenue. 2021, it was down maybe to 5% of our revenue. Everybody had 16 masks. Nobody needed another one. Um, 
and COVID in and of itself, you know, was, was super challenging. The beginning was devastating to everybody. We lost significant revenue. But as soon as the world figured out that kids are somewhat safe to the disease and parents just need to stay separate on the sidelines and kids started participating again, again, not at 100% participation level, but even 50% participation level, the use of squad locker doubled and tripled relative to pre-COVID because we're a single unit, ship direct to home, contactless delivery system. And so our adoption increased, um, but the supply chain disruption was super hard. I mean, getting blank items, everybody was um, challenged to get us the blank items that we needed to make for our customers. But quite honestly, while we had some significant bumps in the road and some times when our customer service team was under a tremendous amount of stress, this holiday season, October, November, December of 2021, we were 99% plus on time. We didn't hear a cricket um, around Christmas time because we delivered almost everything that was needed, uh, just like it wasn't COVID. So we figured it out and we've got it figured out. And how has it been navigating with all of the supply chain issues and um, just lack of products and some, you know, some brands that might not be able to provide a hat or a shirt? How has that been for you, you know, at, at on top, seeing all of these uh, issues that have been apparent with the uh, supply chains of COVID? Yeah, I mean, it's disheartening, right? What's really going on underneath that supply chain disruption? Well, you know, we get clothing from Vietnam, we get clothing from China, we get clothing from Latin America. Um, all of those countries are um, immunization scarce, vaccine scarce environments. And so until vaccination becomes broadly available globally, the way to combat infection is containment. And many of these countries have governments that don't allow the freedom for a bunch of three guys to get on a podcast with the title Beer, Business and Balls, right? Who knows whether that would be accepted in China, communist China. I don't know. I mean, I spent a lot of time in China. I understand the environment pretty well. But the way China's managing or Vietnam's managing this COVID crisis is they're saying someone's sick, shut the whole city down. Um, and so as a result, you have these huge air gaps in the supply chain, big bubbles of nothing. And remember, they're interconnected supply chains. So the Chinese factory may be supplying the Vietnamese factory with its fabric or Chinese factory may be making the zippers to go to Latin America for the jacket. And so it's such an interconnected web that it's created massive disruption. What's happened to us is it's just put a big burden on us to broaden the merchandising line, to be super nimble and saying, oh, you need a soccer jersey in blue. There was a period where Adidas was out of soccer jerseys. You couldn't get a jersey from Adidas, which is insane to think of, right? So what would we do? We'd come up with a lookalike. We'd try and buy what was available. We'd switch people into different things. It just put a lot of taxation on our staff. But in the end, you know, we glued it all together. And, you know, you, you even take it a step further, right? The supply chain's all, you know, out of whack for everybody. Um, but something that, you know, as Will and I are kind of going over your, uh, you know, your endeavors in and outside of squad lockers, the philanthropic uh, efforts that you guys, you know, have put in place as well. Um, on the board of Moses Brown, right down the road from uh, where we are, uh, you guys have donated uh, at least, 
I think the number we have is 10,000 masks. Um, you know, how, how important is the philanthropy part of this, uh, the, this endeavor that you guys are, are building here? So for me, it's very personally important. The reason I serve on the school Moses Brown is because I believe that a Quaker education creates inclusion and communication in the style that solves problems uh, and builds consensus in very complex situations. And if you look at the world today, it doesn't take too long to find out how complex the world is. And the world is in an ever-evolving state of crisis at some point in some time. And so what's the parallel between a Quaker education and my interest in Squad Locker? Both of them look to resolve conflict. Squad Locker makes it the conflict of getting decorated apparel, but more importantly, the time it takes to do that for the mentor who then has more time to bend his or her knee in front of the child and say, what is it that you're up to today? Are you in a good place? Are you in a bad place? How can I celebrate with you? How can I support you? And so that is uh, very near and dear to solving the world's constant evolving crisis, right? And so the only way we're going to get through that is there are more kids prepared to take on the work of what it is the world needs. I, th I feel the same way about kids who graduate from Moses Brown. I think they're equally and uniquely prepared to take on the world's most complex problems. And so for me, it's infusing my energy and my love into both of those groups of people. One's a little bit smaller, one has a bigger audience. But I believe they both have the same capability, which is, you know, repairing the world. Definitely an important message. And uh, I know our coaches and parents probably wish that Squad Locker was around when we were playing sports because. Uh, you talking about the, uh, you know, those old 70s style stores with the glass countertops. I mean, I had flashbacks of uh, getting jerseys and cleats and socks, and it was just always a, a pain in my ass. And, you know, my dad has seven kids, so I, I know he's definitely going to laugh after this interview. Um, but as we close out the show, we always love to, you know, focus on the entrepreneurship and the entrepreneurial side and what advice you could provide to listeners. So standing where you are today or sitting where you are today, um, what advice would you give yourself in the past knowing what you know now? So I, I've gotten asked this question a few times lately from some young people because my kids are leaving college and their friends are trying to figure out how to figure out their lives, so to speak. I've boiled it down to two very basic and simple things. One, you have to become good at something. And so I think a lot of people get really hung up on trying to be good at something that other people think is important, but that's not, that's a very hollow pursuit. I got really good at textile sciences, textile manufacturing, textile engineering. I was lucky. I, I learned it from my dad who I had a great relationship with and it was in my family and it was accessible to me. Um, but my kids are not involved in textiles in any way, shape or form. And they're trying to find out what they want to be good at. Right? But the world values people with passion and skills. So don't worry about what it is, whether other people like it. Worry about the fact that you want to actually wake up and do it every day. My daughter's at Drexel right now, and she took a class in the culinary school, and she really, really loved it. She was concerned that people might think differently of her because she was learning to be a cook. I was like, that's not important to me. What's important to me is that you want to run out of your dorm to get to the classroom, not figure out how to avoid it. So Find out what you want to do in life and explore it and take your youth to figure that out because it's the best time in your life where you get to do that with very low consequences, right? 
The other thing, once you find or get a hint at your passion, is please learn to work collaboratively with more than yourself. you got to learn to work with people. That's where the being on a team is so valuable, learning to win with dignity, learning to lose with dignity, learning to rely on other people for your own personal success. The more you're willing to allow people into your life to become part of your success story, the higher the likelihood is of your success. Now, people may not consider, what does that really mean? Like, I don't have a big network. You just got to open up your channels to build your network. You have to smile at people. You have to show up. You have to reach out and say, hey, I want to shake your hand. I mean, I said no to you guys on getting on this podcast because I had other priorities with things I canceled on you three or four times. We reconnected, I think it was on Instagram or LinkedIn. And you're like, hey, what about the show? I'm like, yep, you're right. Time's good now. Let's do it, right? That was all about just being present and being aware and being connected. And I think people really lose sight of that. It's really easy to stick into your Facebook or Instagram or Twitter account or whatever account you're looking at and touching electric device and thinking that you're really having a personal connection with people. And I would argue, don't do that. Find, you know, somebody in the 150 yard circle of where you're sitting right now that you don't know and figure out a way to meet them. Um, and spend a lot of time doing that because the network brings you to humanity. Humanity allows you to express what you're good at in an interconnected way. Find your passion, find your tribe. It's as simple as that, guys. Yeah, it's all really good advice. And let's put it in the context of Squad Locker now just to bring it home here. You know, you guys have some cool stuff going on, a lot of new content, a lot of new shows um as we mentioned you know before tip fair trial dan Co uh dan copen working on past our prime um what's up next for squad locker you know where yeah where so we've got we've got some big things coming up um we've been working on some significant you know seven figure deals with some new distribution partners that we're going to be you know releasing shortly so you know stay tuned to squadlocker.com you know, if you're not signed up for a newsletter, sign up for it. If you're not following us on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, do so. Sign up for a blog. Um, but, you know, the year 2020 will be one of significant partnership uh, announcements. So really excited about what we've got in the can that we're ready to release. And just a side fun question, too. Who do you think's more washed up, Tip or Dan? I think that's a great question. I think... You know, Tip is just a, a wannabe broken soul when it comes to, you know, never really having gotten there. But Dan certainly has taken the biggest fall, right? I mean, he reached the ultimate height. I mean, he is a two-time Super Bowl champion. So he's effectively more washed up from a, I was here, now I'm here, right? And by the way, the most spectacular guy has an accounting degree from Boston College, super, super bright. Tip is super bright, and I love him like a son. Like literally I've spent, you know, 12 or 15 years investing in tip and he, we have a f super good friendship. I just think tips issue is he never really got there. <laughs> it's all fair. It's and all it, fair. And, and, and by the way, it's the chip on his shoulder, which drives him every morning to like kill, 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 kill. So he's incredibly, you know, good, massive tenacity and incredible, incredibly competitive. But Dan was Tom Brady's center. And won Super Bowls with him. How could you get any higher than that? So I think he's more washed up. That's a fair assessment because, you know, you don't even consider that, oh, it's different fields they were playing on, right? You know, they're both at the same spot now. They actually share a table. Yeah. <laughs> so who fell furthest? 
Dan fell furthest. That's, he had to have. I get he that. Had to he had to have. Because you reached the highest highs. Right. He was on the Empire State Building and uh, Tip. Tip, uh, tip was on the got, roof of your garage. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to even say maybe halfway up like the Superman Building, but no. uh, all right. No. Maybe not even that much. Tip was on the top of the uh, of the shed in the backyard. Oh, man. <laughs> hey, he's killing the Peloton game now, right now. I'll give him that. He is all over the bike. He's fearless. He is a fearless competitor. So, <laughs> oh. so to wrap up the show, Gary, we appreciate you coming on. Uh, we'd be remiss to not ask about your favorite Rhode Island spots, your favorite types of beers. Um, you know, Rhode Island, we're very fortunate to have so many different craft breweries, but as well as a ton, a ton of great food options. So what do you yeah. like to do in the area? What do you like to eat and drink? Yeah, so... I'm sure a lot of people say this, but this Whaler's Rise APA or what IPA APA, I think this has to be one of the best beers in America right now. Like I'm wow. waiting for it to be available in 50 states. It is so good. And so that is my go-to beer. I mean, it's it's not like having a Michelob Ultra where you can just like suck, suck down a seltzer and have 78 calories. I mean, it's a beer, right? So I don't know how many calories it is because I don't want to know, but they're delicious delicious beer uh as food goes you know what's funny about food in rhode island food in rhode island's really changed when i was in my like teens and 20s and even early 30s rhode island food was like top of the world alforno federal hill capriccio's it was like known across america i kind of think rhode island really needs to find itself again there's some great places to get food i had a phenomenal meal at new rivers um, which is down at the bottom of Angel Street, right where it hits like South Main, North Main intersection down there. Had a phenomenal meal there the other day. Um, you know, there's some standards like Hemingway's and places like that, but I'm waiting for like the cool breakout chef-inspired experience that Rhode Island really was known for. North was great when it was up in that cool little place. Like that was a really neat restaurant. It was in like the Longo Square, some weird name of a square near the behind the police complex on the other side of the highway. But then it only had like eight tables, impossible to get into. That was a really special dining experience. Then they moved to the Dean Hotel and it's kind of it's kind of okay now. I don't know, it's weird. I think Rhode Island has to reinvent itself. It is to the tip and Dan conversation before, we could spend a lot of time on Rhode Island food like who's falling from grace <laughs> that's fair that's fair and hey maybe your uh your next adventure post squad locker in parallel is uh the new dining experience in rhode island you never know you never, you never know, know. i don't know i think i will say chomp might be on its way to to getting there right but chomp is awesome but i yeah. haven't eaten there in a long time i used to eat to the one in, in warren when i lived in barrington that was a yep. great place i haven't tried them um but i'd like to yeah that's kind of that mold. It's like, you know, the chef inspired, it's just like comfort food. It's the most random, like, you know, you call it, I hate to use the word innovative with food, but I mean, it's, it's a new food concept. Think about what I, we talked about before when you talked about like, um, what are the secrets to success and entrepreneurialism, authenticity, passion. How do you get to authenticity and passion? Somebody's invested their life into something. You can taste that in the food. Right. Right. I don't necessarily feel the same way about federal Hill anymore. It's fair. Right, I don't feel that way about the old classics. I used to love Al Forno. Having a meal at Al Forno used to be mind-blowing, like toe-tingling food. And I don't know, since COVID happened, I've eaten there a few times. It's okay, you know. 
I know I'm probably going to get shot in the back with an arrow when I my dog <laughs> for my college. You all know, like to speak ill about Al Forno is like, you know, you got to have, you got anyway, I love the people. Yeah, you better Forno. stop now before you're like a wanted <laughs> man. I love, the, I love the people over there. I had a little bit of a greasy pizza the other day. I was a little disappointed. That's all. Uh, oh, That's man. All That's all right. That's all right. And then one closeout question, just because, you know, we got to end it with the squad locker as well. You guys have a ton of different merchandise, a ton of different apparel products. What is one favorite piece that you have had created in the squad locker world? So the hat I'm wearing right now is my favorite new piece. It is a, um, hold on, I don't know the exact number, but it's a Pacific Headwear trucker hat. It's uh, a snapback. You can adjust the back. And if you notice, we put the little squad locker logo bottom left. But uh, it's like a camo design. Hat's awesome. Hat fits great. Other than that, uh, there's an Under Armour seam-sealed, waterproof, high-end piece of outerwear that I had made for me like three or four years ago that I've worn religiously for like the last three or four years. Great piece. There's a lot. I mean, they got like 17,000 items on our platform to choose from. But if you're not sure, click the blue chat bubble. Have a conversation with somebody here. And we'll figure out what's right for you. I love it. That's a that's a great plug to end the show. Um, Gary, thanks so much. This has been awesome to go inside your brain and get your thoughts. Uh, to close out, where can our listeners find Squad Locker and engage with the content that you guys are putting out? Yeah, so we have two podcasts, Past Our Prime and On The Whistle. Both are recorded here in our studio. Um, and SquadLocker.com, we put out a blog. We have a user's newsletter. Uh, follow us on all the usual social platforms. And if you want to connect with me, best way is LinkedIn. Um, I'm a big LinkedIn guy. That is my Facebook. I, I like to learn what people are up to and who's doing what and where things are happening. So shoot me a, a message on LinkedIn. I'd love to connect with you. Perfect. Well, we appreciate the time. Uh, good luck with the rest of the year. And we're excited to see what's in store for Squad Locker. Thanks again, Thanks, Gary. Guys. Take care. And that was just Gary Goldberg of Squad Locker. Uh, I mean, we love Squad Locker. We've talked about it for our merch for, you know, quite some time. They make incredible stuff and we love to support local. And I mean, one of the top startups in Rhode Island, if not the top startup in Rhode Island. So we're happy with the products. We're happy with the services. And we're very happy that he came on the show and shared his story. Excellent, excellent stuff. Uh, like you said, very, very smart guy just very very intelligent the way he carries himself the ideas that he have i'm looking forward to seeing how they grow in the uh coming years i am too they good stuff all around i actually need to make a, another order for our new fryer stuff too um mm -hmm. it's very feels like 2022 it does feels like 2022. <laughs> and what a segment to balls presented by manscaped i said this the last time it went on I didn't get them, but I need more blades. And you bet that I'm going to manscaped.com and I'm using the code house to get my blades for my lawnmower 3.0. Great stuff. Product speak for itself. Manscaped. The only way. I don't really have anything else about Manscaped. That's fine. Manscaped <laughs> it is. Manscaped it is. All right. Um, you know, real quick, I know we discussed the Super Bowl off offline real quick. I mean, it's a weird game, good one, 
happy for the Rams. It just felt boring. That's all. It was like the most boring a good game can be. And I'll, that's really all I have to say about the Super Bowl. You thought it was boring? I thought it got a little, like, the third quarter was cool. That's Like, the fourth quarter was so dumb. It's like, all right, yeah, back and forth, but punt, 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 punt. Oh, shit, Matt's I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, I disagree on that take. I thought it was one of the better Super Bowls in a while. Really? Um, just because of, yeah, just because of, one, how close it is. Like, obviously, the, the Bengals were coming in as the underdog, and they fought till the very last play. And for you know, the Rams who scored that first touchdown with OBJ, I mean, he was going to have one hell of a game to him, you know, ended up tearing his ACL to the Bengals locked out Cooper cup until like the Rams figured out, Oh shit. Like let's throw to him anyway. In the fourth quarter, like that's when like things, I mean, he did have a touchdown prior, but like the fourth quarter the last five passes were just cup, cup, cup. Um, and I mean, Stafford had that swaggy, no look pass. I thought it was a, I thought it was a pretty good game and I had a ton of bets hit. I had a ton. I went, I went, I think like 12 and four on my picks. I cashed in. I still have to go to the casino to pick them up. I did some of the book and then some, the good old paper trail. Yeah. That's always fun. I mean, so I'll, I'll leave it at this. You know, I did not, I parlayed most of my stuff because FanDuel mm. got me. Um, I mm. missed out on, I would have been up about 10 units if Joe Burrow had more than 10 rush yards and he didn't. Yeah, no, I don't, I, I stay away from those. It sucks. Yep. So that was all. Um, I tried to, I was so confident that Cooper cup was going to get the MVP. So I wagered everything I had in the account on Cooper cup, getting it, um, and I was profitable after that. I wagered everything. Did he get the MVP? Yeah, he did. Okay. And yeah. I hedged it with a $5 bet on Aaron Donald, who was plus 900 at the time. Really? Yeah, this was after the game. It was Cup, Stafford, and Donald. FanDuel had it up for maybe three minutes, and I'm like, holy shit, I'm not going to get Cup anything better than minus 145, so I'm doing it. Huh. That was pretty yeah. good. So yeah, I had Stafford as MVP. I just thought I, I mean, our buddy handled had Cooper cup for two touchdowns. And I was just like, "Ah, I don't know. And I mean, if OBJ didn't get hurt, I don't think that would have happened. I I'm probably with you there. It's yeah. I I actually agree with that because OBJ very well could have had two touchdowns. Yeah. Yeah. What a world. That sucks. He, 50, world. Uh, he hit the over on receiving yards and then got hurt. I'm like, good. This is excellent. <laughs> Fine. Yeah. I mean, I, I had him on, I had him on both. Um, but no, we're on to the next sport. Baseball. Just fucking. Yes. Kidding. We're on to baseball. Just uh, kidding. Well, we've got college baseball, which is fine, but I mean, baseball is going nowhere. Uh, the lockout we're, we're doomed. We're, well, we're doomed. Let me rephrase. I don't think we're doomed. I think there's a light at the end of the tunnel because, you know, I'm talking, I'm just thinking this through today and like, you know, there's just, it's too much money tied up that the owners aren't going to, they're not going to want to lose out on more money. So they're, they've got to no. do something. They've got to budge. They have to. I mean, they're, it's nice that they had back-to-back meetings. Yeah. 
you know, I but agree. I mean, still it lasted longer than 15 minutes, which is good. It's just embarrassing. It is the it's sports going to hell in a handbasket. Um, it really sucks. I mean, college baseball, we'll give that a quick shout out though. Hey, Bryant, get the fucking brooms out. Swept East Carolina, number 12 in the nation, uh, beat their ass day one, got them on a reversed walk-off on Saturday, and then beat them by a run on Sunday. Done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. College bad. baseball, college baseball is going to be good. No, it's, and it's, it's kind of wild because college baseball is finally getting more and more uh, publicity because a lot of these major – media outlets that cover the MLB are just like, fuck, where do we turn our attention to? And I think it was Carabas who said it best. He goes, like, if you just love the game of baseball, like watch college ball because you can just tell these guys are just so fired up and passionate that you don't normally get to see that a lot in the MLB. And, and that's not saying that MLB players aren't passionate, but it's a longer season. You know, no one really gives a shit about a, uh, an April baseball game that goes into the 11th inning, right? It's like people like these players, it's like they look all year for this and they're just like, hey, we have a small window to get this done. Let's do it now. And they're trying to make a name for themselves and they, they get away with a little bit more in terms of like celebrating. But yeah, no, I mean, I definitely want to follow along a little bit more closely. Obviously, like, you know, you have those teams like Vanderbilt, LSU, um, you know, they're always going to be at the top, but we have some love for Brian making rankings 22 in the nation. I think right now after that sweep, right. Don't sleep. Don't sleep. I know some good stuff. Um, yeah. What's that college basketball too? Um, this is really heating up. <laughs> that's why I'm just so like, all right, there's, it's overwhelming. Like so many good storylines. I mean, Juwan Howard from Michigan getting, you know, slapped with a five game suspension. Uh, that's a big that's one. Assault, that's, bro. that's assault. That's assault. Bro. I mean, he hit Greg guard in the face. The video evidence is crystal clear. It's that's assault brother. That was, assault. that was bad. I'm sorry. That was just like, I watched that video like 15, 20 times to figure out what triggered him. And I guess it all stems to like, he called a late timeout when, you know, Michigan was down by, I think at least 15, but then like people had receipts, like Jawan Howard did that like 10 times in college. Michigan was up by like, Michigan was up like 20 plus and he's calling timeouts with two minutes left. So like, don't get triggered if you're going to do the same shit. Yeah. But he got tossed. Wild. But well, it was a wild toss. I'm not, it really was. Yep. It was a crazy toss. I think, I don't know, Greg Gard said something to him, but it doesn't matter. I mean, he can't hit a guy in the face. It's that simple. Um, no. No, that was bad stuff. To, to move to the Big East as well, UConn with a big-time win over Villanova. I mean, that's that's – Really cool. Uh, Big East is heating up. Providence fans get what they want. And now Villanova and Providence, for the most part, I mean, it's snack and neck between them. Maybe a few other teams will sneak in, but it's uh, Providence is right where they need to be. They need to win out. They need to, to take it from Villanova this next time, too, in Pennsylvania. What are they, a one-game lead? I think it's a one-game lead right now, yeah. Um, 
probably one and a half until because Villanova just lost. Right. I guess one and a half. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know. It's hard because like Providence isn't going to get those games made up. But when Providence was playing Nova last week, Providence had two games on them. Right. So they lost one and then Nova loses again. I guess it's one. In, I mean, I guess it's two in the loss column. Right. I think so. Yeah. But either way, I mean, it's, it's going to be down to them. Providence just needs to beat Villanova. None of this will, none of it will get to where it needs to be if they win the next time around. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be very interesting. We're three weeks of the madness. We're three weeks away. We'll, we'll go in depth next week into some, you know, some crazier some stuff. college hoops. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Some tournament watches, stuff like that. It's just a nice little primer. Go to college hoops digest on Twitter and you'll find out more. And we can leave it at that. It's that simple. Go, people. That's uh, simple. Fanta is going to be in the building when this airs, by the way. Xavier Providence, he'll be there. Lock it up for Providence, man. I don't think they've lost with him in that building yet, besides Villanova. Besides Nova. Yeah. But he wasn't calling the game, so maybe that there's some flexibility. No, because they counted the records when he was in the building, so mm, yeah, I don't I know. know. It's It's a tough one. <sighs> Yeah, it's a tough one. I don't know. But all the eyes are on college basketball now, which is good. Uh, We're going to have more in the coming weeks, which is really great. Um, And I'm pretty excited. This next couple of weeks will be good. Buckle up. Buckle up. Nice little uh, quick ball segment. Not much. I mean, it's kind of like a weird – there's a lot going on in sports, but not a whole lot. Uh, (laughs) We're not really following hockey too closely. We'll have to get handled on to give a run-through on – the state of the NHL, the NBA. I mean, I thought, honestly, All-Star Weekend was a joke. The game is just, it makes no sense anymore. It's like, literally, they're just walking. Like, you have guys like Rudy Gobert and Jokic that, like, they are useless in the All-Star game because no one's, like, they're they're the defenders, they're the guys, and no one's defending. <laughs> and, like, it's all, like, flashy dunks and, like, and, like, and deep threes. And, like, you have ball hogs, like, LeBron, Steph, um, guys like that, they're not going to do shit. But the only cool part I thought of the All-Star Weekend was the NBA 75 anniversary and seeing all those players together. um, I thought that was really cool. They had, like, all the Lakers together in a photo. It was, like, um, Kareem, LeBron, Shaq, and they left the space for Kobe, which was nice. Um, It was cool seeing, like, Patrick Ewing and Mello shooting the shit, two Knicks greats. Um, Michael Jordan was like chatting it up with like Luca, hugging LeBron, hugging Dennis Rodman. I thought it was so funny that there's still beef with Ray Allen and KG. Like <laughs> he like daps up LeBron, who like they won the, like the, Ray Allen's second ring, obviously, was with LeBron, but like KG's right next to him, just being like, you're really not going to dap me up right now. Come on, man. So I thought it was, I thought it was just funny. Yeah. To wrap it up. I mean, the, the NBA all-star weekend sucked. That, that was the only good part. That was the only (laughs) good part. I mean, Obi Toppin did win the dunk contest, which is cool as a Knicks fan, but man, what a boring ass dunk contest. We don't have it like we used to. Yeah. Not have it like we used to. It sucks. That's for another day. I don't want to be pissed. I want to be happy today. And that was awful. Yeah. But 
that's all. That's all we've got. Yeah. 78. Uh, We'll be back with you next week. Some exciting stuff in the works. That's Will and I'm Jake. So long, folks. Take it easy. Thank you.